Welcome to Markets Plus, where leading experts from across BMO discuss factors shaping the markets, economy, industry sectors, and much more. Visit bmocm.com slash markets plus for more episodes. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Today's Markets Plus episode features Michael Gregory, Managing Director and Deputy Chief Economist and Head of U.S. Economics, from a recent Tech Talk 2024 Economic Forecast BMO event, hosted by Oksana Matvienko, Director, Treasury and Payments, and Umair Mansour, Managing Director, North American Market Leader for Technology and Innovation. Let's listen to what Michael Gregory had to say. Hello, everyone. This is one of the biggest questions I get when I'm speaking uh, to customers and uh, in, in, in groups is whether or not we're going to get a, a hard or a soft landing. Uh, we all know what a hard landing is. It's uh, akin to a recession where inflation falls quite sharply back to where it's supposed to be, maybe even a little bit below where it's supposed to be. And a soft landing is a, is a, is a situation in where we get very low or maybe no growth, where inflation still comes down. Uh, but not as uh, uh, abruptly as it would say in a recession scenario. So and ideally, we'd like to be in that soft landing because it means that the economy doesn't have as much damage uh, uh, to it as it otherwise would. Whether or not we get a harder soft landing will largely be dependent on what the, the central banks decide to do with interest rates. And in turn, what they do with interest rates will be largely determined on what happens to the path of disinflation, how much inflation falls in the months ahead and how much more they feel they have to raise rates. So a good place to start here is where is inflation right now? Both sides of the board, it's been the same story. Inflation peaked last summer and uh, and in the case of the US, we are above 9%, the highest we've seen in 40 years. Put that in another perspective, for half the US population, that would be the fastest, who by the way are under 40, that would be the fastest inflation rate they've ever experienced in their entire lifetimes. Well, you know, part of that was because of the spike we had in commodity prices. We'll talk a little bit why that happened, but those commodity prices have since fallen. And it's kind of interesting that uh, over the last couple of months or so, we began to see maybe just uh, crude oil prices and petroleum prices broadly beginning to sort of uh, perk back up again, which does suggest that maybe this last mile back to 2% is going to be a bit of a, a bumpy ride. The other side of the inflation story is the fact that we had a situation where uh, demand was very strong coming out of the pandemic and supply chains were constrained uh, because of the pandemic and other factors. And slowly but surely, we dealt with global supply chains. And for the most part, they've improved. And in fact, most are back to normal. Meanwhile, all of the rate hikes that we've been living through have done its job to dampen demand a bit. So all of that is sort of heading in the right direction. But there's one little holdout in terms of the outlook for inflation, and that is services inflation, which continues to remain sticky because of wages. And that in turn is causing core inflation to be stubborn. When you look at the underlying rates of inflation, uh, they, they have not fallen clearly as much as, say, headline inflation has fallen. Uh, when you kind of look at sort of the underlying inflation, you've got your core measures, both for the piece, uh, the, the price index for a PCE, but also the CPI. We're all familiar with that. Uh, the core, of course, excludes food and energy. The super core, by the way, is a new uh, measure that the Fed has been following. And what it does is it focuses on where the inflation problem is most acute. It simply looks at core services, strips out the housing side, which for technical reasons still has a little bit of inflation, 
and, 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 and that is the part of inflation that's mostly correlated with wages. So what they're looking at at super core inflation is, is how much we're still seeing that pressure in the labor market continuing to push up services prices and therefore continuing to push up overall inflation. Now, I want to go back to that original story we were talking about, about global supply chains, because they have improved quite markedly. This is a metric that's put together by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and it kind of measures those pressures we are seeing in global supply chains. It measures things like backlogs of orders. It measures supplier delivery delays. It measures transportation costs. And historically, it's done a really good job whenever we've had issues due to natural disasters or geopolitical issues, whenever we've had pressures in the global supply chain. But of course, the pandemic was off the charts uh, in terms of what it did to uh, disrupting supply chains. And slowly but surely, we've been in sort of approving those, particularly since that uh, nasty outbreak of Omicron at the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022. And since then, things have been improving. You know, we had a little bit of, of a blip uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine. And then subsequently, things kind of slowed towards the end of last year as China's uh, onerous uh, uh, COVID restrictions proved to be problematic, not only for the Chinese economy, but for the global economy. Uh, uh, but they eventually reopened. And, and lo and behold, we now, at least in the global context, have the, uh, the least amount of pressures in global supply chains that we've had in the 25 years the Fed's been constructing these data. So, so yes, there are still some issues. It still takes way too long to get a, a vehicle delivered. But nevertheless, you know, global supply chains aren't a problem anymore. And the same thing for the most part with respect to commodity prices. Now, I mentioned before about uh, the impact of Russia invading Ukraine back at the end of uh, February 2022. Well, you know, even before then, commodity prices had peaked as we were reopening the economy and there was slowly the rates of inflation were slowly beginning to slow. But a lot of key commodities had this uh, a little bit of a, a blip, at least a temporary one after that invasion. But slowly but surely, uh, that too began to fade. And as you can see in, uh, you know, across the board, whether it's energy, whether it's agriculture, whether it is uh, industrial metals, all of them are, uh, for the most part, in broad terms, are, are undergoing sort of rates of, of deflation. Prices are falling from the very rapid increases we had uh, earlier. Uh, of course, crude oil prices now are beginning to drift back up again in the wake of the supply cuts that we've seen coming out of Saudi Arabia, and yes, uh, even, even Russia. And, uh, and, and so that and that is now beginning to filter through through higher gasoline prices, which is one of the reasons why we're starting to see uh, headline inflation begin to drift back up again. Well, one of the reasons why we had that rapid fall off in uh, uh, commodity prices, uh, even after the invasion, you know, by, by the summertime and as we headed into September of 2022, uh, you know, all of that worry we had uh, kind of disappeared. And in fact, the worry shifted. Recall that that part of Europe, uh, both uh, Ukraine, Russia and Belarus, are major global producers and exporters of, of key agricultural inputs, key energy, oil and natural gas, as well as some key metals. Therefore, there was a big concern that the supply of, of global commodities would be threatened. It was more concerned, would there be adequate supply? But, you know, that time of the, of, of, of the year, it was just in March, that most central banks began to start raising interest rates. And through the summer of 2022, they really began to pick up the pace of rate increases. Recall the Fed through, through 2022 raised interest rates four consecutive times by 75 basis points. 
And all of a sudden in the global commodity market, shouldn't shift it, but will there be, you know, from will there be adequate supply to will there be adequate demand? Because everyone knows you raise interest rates enough, you slow demand, and then you begin to worry that even though supply is constrained, do you have enough demand to absorb what supply there is? And in fact, you know, the global growth has slowed quite markedly. Last year, it was about almost half what it was in 2021, and it slowed further. We expected to slow further again this year. There's a couple of things to mention in terms of the global outlook. Uh, uh, China, we expect to grow only 5% this year, only that, that for most countries, 5% is a pretty good number. Uh, but clearly coming out of the, uh, the, the lockdowns, coming out of the, the, uh, the onerous restrictions, China has just not mustered the kind of momentum that many people thought they would have. In turn, the government there is, is, is going through various stimulus measures to try to ramp up growth. And of course, Russian uh, growth uh, remains quite lackluster. In fact, it was expected to be negative uh, for this year, but they've managed to eke out some positive uh, numbers. Uh, for some reason, all of the commodities that no one else is buying, other countries in the world, i.e. China and India, seem to be buying it from them, keeping their economy afloat. But for the rest of the world, there are two key reasons why growth has slowed. One of them, everybody has faced some degree of inflation, except uh, even for Japan, quite frankly, everybody has had some degree of inflation. And of course, inflation is a drag on growth. It erodes purchasing power, it erodes real spending. But the addition to that has been the policy response to higher inflation, raising interest rates. You know, apart from Japan, which has yet to really move on tightening policy in a meaningful way, uh, and, 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 and China, which of course has been sort of cutting interest rates because of the weak growth, most countries have raised interest rates quite considerably to try to deal with inflation. And that, of course, has further weakened growth. Hence, we have this pretty lackluster profile for global demand, which has helped bring down inflation, at least on the commodity price front. When you look at across the major central banks around the world, they've all raised interest rates quite sharply, even today. We had both uh, uh, Switzerland, uh, uh, UK, uh, Norway, and Sweden all announced policy decisions. Norway and Sweden raised their interest rates another 25 basis points. In the UK and Switzerland, they opted the whole pat, just like the Fed did earlier uh, this week. But as you can see here, the Fed has been at the top of the, uh, you know, the, the leaderboard in terms of how aggressive they've been raising rates. And in fact, that has uh, caused uh, the U.S. dollar up until very recently, or and, and, and you know, uh, I mean, basically it peaked last autumn, but it has remained quite firm. You know, we were looking at record high levels on trade weighted terms for the U.S. dollar as we headed towards the end of last year, and then you know, eventually, uh, you know, it's 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 come off from those highs, but still remains elevated historically, and that has been another linchpin to the whole inflation story globally. Because, uh, you know, whereas in the United States and Canada and Europe and other countries, one of the reasons why they've all ended up with inflation problems, apart from the supply issues, we've all stimulated demand uh, to try, you know, and, and kickstart the economy, which in fact then created a bit of an inflation problem. But for countries like Mexico or Brazil, they in fact didn't stimulate their economies very much during the pandemic days and to kickstart the economy. Yet they faced inflation too, coming through the import channel. As, as their goods they were importing priced in US dollars became more expensive in local currency terms, and that forced them to raise rates and to try to defend their currency. And, and therefore you ended up with a global inflation problem and a global response to it by raising interest rates.
Now, as I said at the outset, one of the key reasons why we have uh, a bit of a, a, this, uh, a stubborn inflation problem is because of wages. And, and, uh, and that is feeding through mostly in the services sector, which are, uh, and that's the part of the economy where wages tend to have the greatest uh, influence in terms of uh, uh, cost structures. And that, of course, is then feeding in through higher prices generally in the economy. Now, it is the case that if you look at the major wage measures, they've all kind of eased back a little bit from the peaks we had. Uh, but if you were to draw straight lines going across from where we are right now, they still are rather elevated historically. We are still running with wage inflation rates that are running around that 4% range. And not coincidentally, quite frankly, that is where core inflation and super core inflation are running around that 4% range. So we still have some more work to do, although headline inflation seems to be performing quite well. Those underlying themes still remain quite, quite strong. And the Fed is hoping that, uh, you know, the, the tightening they've done, the Bank of Canada is hoping that the tightening they've done is enough to uh, uh, continue that process of disinflation, weakening of the labor market, bringing down um, uh, a wage inflation, and then also uh, eventually just broader inflation throughout the economy. But one of the reasons why wages remain sticky is very much like we had inflation first place in the broad economy, because you know supply has been constrained and demand has remained kind of strong. So this is this is imbalance between the demand and supply, and it's more than just say the unemployment rate. In the U.S., the unemployment rate sits at uh, 3.8%. That's up from the lows we had 3.4%, but uh, that's still well below the kind of historic norms that we've had for the unemployment rate. But when you look directly at what's been happening with demand and supply since the, before the pandemic, is uh, we've had a sort of big run-up in the, in the demand for labor as the economy has reopened, and yet supply has been slow to respond, and particularly talking about in the U.S., and, and, uh, and it's really that gap that the Fed really points to a lot of excess demand and trying to bring balance into that market. Now, the key thing about demand, why it has remained so strong, is that there are two components of labor demand. One is actual payrolls, how many people you've hired. The second one are job openings, how many people you would like to hire. And the sum of those two is what labor demand is. And, and, as, and, and, and in fact, that demand only peaked about three months ago. So all of the rebalancing so far has been on the supply side as that has slowly been creeping higher. Now, fortunately, and this is why the Fed is particularly encouraged now, is the fact that the last three months we've had actual labor demand falling relative to its pre-pandemic level as supplies continue to increase. So that gap continues to narrow. And, and this is really what the Fed is hoping for, that, that it can bring balance in the labor market without creating a lot of layoffs. In other words, a lot easier to eliminate a job opening than it is to fire somebody. And, and, uh, and, and, and so far, that does seem to be the case. We're still hiring, net hiring people, but it's those job openings that are coming down. And those job openings are important because they themselves are what are causing that extra demand for labor and then bidding up wages. A different dynamic happening in Canada, as you can see, where supply has really caught up quite quickly where demand is. Presumably, that's going to lead to even more restrained wage growth in the future. The, 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 the narrative there is the fact that uh, the Canadian government has uh, uh, opened up uh, literally the floodgates with respect to uh, uh, immigration, both temporary and permanent immigration. And Canada is currently undergoing its fastest population growth year on year since the late 1950s. 
So uh, people are coming here, they're in, and they're adding to the labor force, and they're also finding jobs. So that's a good thing. Bit of a growing pain because uh, it's a bit of an issue with housing. We're going to uh, house all these folks, but uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be dealing with that in the months and quarters ahead. So apart from a very still, very sturdy labor market and not a lot of layoffs, which, by the way, is supportive for the economy, another support for demand is the fact that we still have some pent-up uh, demand uh, unfolding, particularly on the services side, where you look at uh, uh, where the uh, growth has been in real spending on services relative to the trend in place before the pandemic. We still haven't really caught up yet. Yes, it's true. Spending on goods, real spending on goods, has gone far exceeding what it was uh, 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 relative to its trend. And in fact, believe it or not, there was that one period in early 2021 in the wake of the American Rescue Plan Act and the third round of economic impact payments when that demand surged to a point where it was literally more than 20% above where it was the year before. And when you think about what 20% growth in real spending means, a, a decent year for real consumer spending growth, particularly on the good side, is around 3%. So basically you squeeze six to seven years of decent growth in real consumer spending into one year. Well, needless to say, when you're the largest economy on the face of the planet, that kind of ripple effect of, of extra demand not only causes pressures in domestic supply chains, it causes pressures in global supply chains. Now, it's, it's interesting, in Canada, both the, the uh, uh, spending on goods and services has both fallen below their, their underlying trend rates, particularly since interest rates began rising in the early part of 2022. And the story there is the fact, unlike U.S. households, which have very uh, 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 um, stable uh, debt-to-income ratios and far below the kind of onerous levels we had during the Great Recession and global financial crisis, Canadian households now have record levels of household debt. So they become much more sensitive to interest rates and have pulled back on their spending accordingly as interest rates have gone up. Yet a third support for the economy comes from excess savings. Now, we, uh, uh, governments provided a lot of support to households on both sides of the board, but particularly in, in, in the US, people couldn't spend as much money, didn't want to spend as much money, they pulled back, but yet most Americans actually worked during the pandemic. And as a result, and not spending as much, they amassed a lot of excess savings. By the way, these are savings above and beyond the, the amounts they normally would saving in their 401ks and 529s, whatever the case may be. And if you look at sort of as a, as a norm, what the average savings rate was before the pandemic, roughly around seven and a half percent, by the end, near the end of 2021, US households had amassed some $2.4 trillion. And since then, the savings rate has fallen below where it was before the pandemic. And as a result, they pulled down their, their excess savings by about half. Now, there is some controversy out there, some debate about how much excess savings remains. And it largely has to do with what truly is the rate of excess savings or, or the rate of savings norm that we should have. We've used the average of the five years before the pandemic. But it is the case that during times of economic uncertainty, which the pandemic and the worry about recession clearly uh, indicates we are in, the savings rate does tend to rise. And also the savings rate is uh, positively correlated with inflation, which of course we've been living with. So there is a chance that the numerator or the norm we should be using should be higher. So, uh, I mean, it, it, you can be arbitrary here, but we did some of an experiment and, and if we use a savings rate closer to around nine and a half percent, which is pretty high, then all of those excess savings actually quite disappear. 
So we do think, given what we're seeing, the patterns of spending, particularly with higher income households, which, by the way, most of the excess savings will be skewed towards, we do believe that there still is a positive contribution coming from excess savings in Canada. You know, uh, if, if you were, say, double that savings rate, you probably would cut those excess savings in half. But again, on both sides of the border, we do think that's a positive contribution. And while there's been fiscal support, again, as a fourth factor for the economy on both sides of the border, in the U.S. it's been particularly pronounced in support for industrial policy. through three key uh, uh, measures, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the Chips and Science Act, and of course, the Inflation Reduction Act, which was a pretty stupid name for a bill, but it did provide a lot of support for investment in energy, clean energy, uh, and also climate change. And between these three bills, by the way, the first two were passed in a bipartisan fashion, you're looking at more than $2 trillion of fiscal support for the economy. Now, the administration, uh, on, and it's a great little website because it shows you every announced project by, by state, which is helpful, uh, and, and, and their tally says that so far, these three bills have contributed to net new announcements of investment uh, over $800 billion. So presumably there's going to be a little bit more support for that coming. And needless to say, it's in technology and construction we are going to see this uh, happen the most. So you're looking at uh, several factors that are fueling the resiliency that people are talking about in the economy. Again, it is this fiscal support, it is excess savings, it is pent-up demand, and of course, it is still sturdy labor markets. As long as you have job growth, you are going to get consumers spending money and being confident that uh, you know that they, uh, they, they they can they can continue to spend going forward. But we do think that we are going to see some building headwinds, and one of those, of course, is what the Fed's been doing. Now, yesterday we had the Fed's policy announcement. They uh, basically kept rates constant. They still are indicating in their own projections that they plan on raising interest rates one more time this year. Our own view is we don't think they will. Uh, and they've indicated, uh, compared to where they were before, that they don't expect to be cutting interest rates as much next year as they said initially. Now, we thought that was going to be the case anyway. They had 100 basis points of rate cuts next year. We had factored in 75 basis points, but it looks like They've shifted down to only 50 now. And quite frankly, we may shift down as well. Because the story here now is not so much how high rates get, it's how high do they remain at those levels? How, you know, it's a case of what people are referring to as, you know, higher for longer. And in fact, it's that worry about higher for longer that's been really behind uh, the kind of the sell-off we've seen in the bond market, which of course contributing, uh, when you add to the fact of, uh, add to the fact the Fed continues to shrink its balance sheet, quantitative tightening, allowing it, you know, uh, uh, not reinvesting its proceeds from maturing treasuries and MBS, that, that too is adding to the upward pressure on long-term interest rates, which is why we have mortgage rates, you know, at, at their highest level in several decades. And, and then on top of all this pressure coming from interest rates, this spring, we saw some stresses emerge in the regional banking segment. And let's put it, this, this, the regional and smaller banks account for about a third, 30% to about a third of credit to the U.S. economy. And, and uh, so, that, you know, that, that, that's a third that's somewhat more compromised or, or, or constrained than would otherwise be the case. But on top of that, for the commercial real estate sector specifically, uh, regional small banks provide about two-thirds of the credit. So, and, and that's a sector that's already been uh, uh, being uh, 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 a little more challenged by the whole work from home phenomena and, and, and lower vacancy rates.
All right, so now we're going to add up all, you know, we know what all these the factors of resiliency are. Now we're going to take a look at that list of the factors that are offsetting that. We've, we've got all those rate hikes. And by the way, it takes time for rate hikes to work their way through the economy. And they are still working their way through the economy. We're not quite sure exactly what the net effect will be. There's uncertainty. Also, we've got continued quantitative tightening. We've got the stress uh, uh, in the banking system and in the real estate sector as well. A couple of other special factors. We have student loan payments resuming uh, next month, uh, which is going to take a lot of consumer spending out of the economy. We've got a UAW strike, which is is, is threatening to widen to more than just a, a handful of, of uh, assembly plants. And finally, potentially come October 1st, we may have a government shutdown, which of course will weigh more on the economy. So all of these factors, I think, are going to offset and basically grind growth to a halt. We aren't looking for a recession, but we think growth will slow basically to about nothing in the early part of next year and then rebound again. That is the soft landing. We think we'll get it. Canada is going to underperform again because of the impact of record high levels of debt. And finally, you know, ultimately, when you get this weakness in the growth, it's going to allow the unemployment rate to drift up just a little bit. And we do think that that is going to help contribute to even lower or slower wage gains, which, of course, will help the process of disinflation. We think by the end of next year, we will get uh, inflation running in the low 2% range and heading even lower. And we do think come 2025, the Fed may be more uh, willing to start cutting rates at a faster pace to get them back to normal. And normal, folks, ain't zero where they were before. Normal is about 2.5%. Thanks for listening. You can follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more episodes, visit bmocm.com slash markets plus. For BMO disclosures, please visit bmocm.com slash podcast slash disclaimer.